I'm going to greet each one in Jesus' name this morning. It's a blessing to be here together around God's Word. And uh, for what we've heard already this morning, I've been challenged with that. As we come to the book of Amos, the third of the minor prophets, I uh, am challenged by uh, his life and uh, I'm challenged in the sense that uh, I can uh, study about Amos and we can study about Amos. You've read the book. How many read the book of Amos this last week? Okay. It's always humbling to me to uh, see that you spend the effort to read the book of Amos and... uh, um, or the book that we want to study, and uh, it's almost like it's a it's a character that we can look forward to get to knowing. And uh, one of the challenges of uh, <clears throat> this has been that we can study and we can fill our minds with all the sorts of things about Amos when he when he preached how, and all of those things. But unless there's a spiritual message there that reaches from our head to our heart, what good has it done? And so this morning, even though we want to look at some of the physical aspects of Amos, my prayer is that we could have the spiritual lesson that he uh, was preaching as the most important thing that we learn. And in that sense, let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these prophets that you inspired in the Old Testament to write your words. And Lord, it seems that there's many times that we don't give them much attention. And we want to thank you for the opportunity of getting to know them. But this morning we pray that their life would be a spiritual blessing to us. We pray that as we look at the life and book of Amos, that it might be such that would help us to grow spiritually by it to leave this place with a burden, with a passion like Amos had. And Lord, that we might be drawn closer to you and that we might walk closer to you because of having been here this morning. We pray, Father, that you would rebuke the devil and his forces from distracting us and that through the blood of your son Jesus that you would we rebuke them and ask that you would help us to understand your word in a pure and holy way. And so, Lord, continue your presence here. Guide us, speak to us. Might we receive that blessing that you have in store for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of questions for you. Why do we call Amos one of the minor prophets? What what does minor prophets mean? Anyone? A short? How'd you say it? A short book? Okay. They didn't write very much. Has anybody come up with any other definition of that? Since you read the book of Amos, just going to ask you a little bit of what you remember about him. What was it? What was he? What was his occupation? He was an Ian. I mean a herdsman. He was took care of sheep. Well, I guess it was sheep. It doesn't really say. So, uh... What Ian does with cows, maybe that's what uh, Amos was doing with uh, 
with sheep or goats or uh, whatever else meat. What else did he do? It's not in chapter 1. It's later in the book. Anybody catch it? What else did he do? He prophesied. Okay, thank you. I was going to ask for that one too. What else? Okay, he had an orchard or something. Does somebody know what he did otherwise? He raised a family? Okay. I missed that one, Josh. Where do you see that? Your sons? Okay. Okay. That may be. I'm not saying... um, I'm not saying that he didn't have a family. I don't. But there's still in one other occupation, and really I can tell you what it is, but I'm not sure where it's at. Pardon? A gatherer of sycamore fruit. Okay? That's uh, somewhere it's mentioned of that. Do you have a reference with that, Leon? 714. Thank you. I think I have it in my notes somewhere, but... 7.14, Amos said unto Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Sycamore fruit was actually like a fig and uh, uh, grew on a, it was a large tree, but grew close to the trunk and uh, could be eaten by man, man or animals and uh, was a, was, seemed to be a very popular fruit. And uh, what I found interesting is that the sycamore fruit didn't necessarily follow a season, but any time, as as often as even every two months, it would have fruit. And uh, so he would apparently pick these. They made a comment that I don't understand. They said they used to have to scratch scratch the fruit so that it would ripen. Now that one I can't vouch for. I don't know what exactly what he means. And then, um, thirdly, he was a prophet. Even though in that verse it says he wasn't a son of a prophet, but he says, neither was I a prophet. I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. And then uh, verse 15, And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. So uh, he uh, went and prophesied to Israel. Clarify with you that he was not the father of Isaiah. If you look at the book of Isaiah, the first verse says, "Son of Amos," spelled with a Z, and uh, he wasn't. He wasn't the father of Isaiah. Somebody know what the name Amos means? Burden bearer. And uh, the Jews think that maybe he had a speech impediment. That was his burden that he couldn't talk quite right. But uh, some people would rather say that he, his prophecy were burdens to the people and uh, such as they could not bear. They were full of reproofs and uh, so they were different than, uh, or they were burdensome to them and so that's why he had the name Amos. Now I don't know, did his name change when he was older or how that all is, but it means a burden bearer. So... Uh, um, One thing that uh, after the service came up last time about Joel, that uh, 
wondered whether Joel might not have been a gentle, very caring prophet. And uh, I said it had entered my mind in the sense that Joel did not list the sins of Israel. Remember, remember through the book of Joel, he did not list the sins of the people, but he told them that they needed to be saved. And the main message of Joel was what? Repentance. Repent. So uh, hopefully we can define the main message of Amos. And uh, we can, uh, I didn't think about it. We did that for Hosea necessarily, what the main theme was of Hosea. But I hope from here on out to have a simple phrase of what each message was of the prophets, if we can come up with that. Um, Boys, your turn. Come find Amos. There's something interesting about Amos. Just use those two books. Uh, There's something interesting about the prophet Amos that you'll find on these timelines. And... uh, close right there okay turn around hold it up this is the timeline and uh, again we'll give the definition of here's the end of the kingdom of Israel where'd you point to Amos right there okay pull that together keep holding this right there did you find Amos Okay, turn that one around. Show us what Amos is. Right here. Okay? What years? Look at the numbers. What years do you think he was before Christ? 784. So 780, 780 years before Christ. Now, look for the other prophets on there. Where does Amos come in relation to the other prophets? After what? After Joel? Same time as Joel. Who's this? Jonah. Okay. Who's this? Hosea. Is that before or after? Same. Oh, Hosea, same time as Amos. Joel, the same time of Amos. Who's this? Micah. Okay. Who's this? Isaiah. You find any prophets at the same time as as, uh, Amos? Hosea. Hosea. Any others? (coughs) Isaiah. Okay. The interesting thing, and it's more apparent on this timeline, is that it looks like Amos was what to all the other prophets? Before. Now that one, it starts it at about the same time, but here it's a little earlier. So Amos could very likely have been the first of the minor prophets, even though we're studying him third. Anything else you see about uh, Amos on the timeline? Except that there where he is? What are these years? 765 to 754. And this one is greater than that, right? 780? 784. Okay, maybe that's where he died. Okay, but they think that Amos. Okay, you may be seated. They think that Amos may have.
been the earliest of the uh, of the minor prophets, and uh, always come back to the one that that I like that makes more sense than just relating to all the things that that we do is that we have the kings of Israel, we have Amos here. And uh, the only prophet, here's Elijah and Elisha, and here's Jonah. Now Jonah obviously went to Nineveh, not to Israel. And so it does seem like Amos could very well have been the first of the minor prophets. But what's interesting, we have Hosea here, we have Isaiah there. And uh, so he had fellowship, maybe even maybe even Micah, we're not sure. But uh, because in verse 1 it says, The words of Amos, who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So uh, we have there the exact time when he was a prophet, which we didn't have uh, in the book of Joel. Uh, just to tell you that he prophesied mostly to the ten tribes or their northern kingdom, I believe that he was the most courageous of the Old Testament prophets. Keep that, keep that in mind. Some uh, co- One commentator made this comment, and we'll look at it a little bit later. He says he feared God so much he didn't fear man at all. And uh, we've got one instance of that and uh, that we want to see. And uh, he was confident of God's calling. I thought a verse that was very interesting. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealed his secret unto his servants, the prophets. So Amos was secure in the thought that God was going to tell him what was happening and that he would show the prophets what was going to be. I'm going to uh, read a portion of the uh, uh, Sunday School Quarterly that have been very interesting in this study. Um, It says, Amos, the name of the prophet in his book, means burden bearer. He did not fear to share the burden of the Lord laid on his heart, even if it meant unpopularity or rejection. He's an example of courage and faithfulness in an age of peace and prosperity, and yet great sin against God. He was from a village in the southern kingdom of Judah, about ten miles south of Jerusalem. He preached God's truth and judgment against the northern kingdom centered at Samaria. Interestingly, he demonstrated his humility when I said I was no prophet. Neither was I a prophet's son, but was I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Yet God called him to prophesy, and he willingly heeded the call. With peace and prosperity during the reign of Jeroboam II of Israel, people must have scoffed at the warnings against their transgressions. Amos, known as the Old Testament preacher of righteousness, pointed out that true worship results in changed behavior. Only about 30 years later, the Assyrians invaded Israel and brought God's judgment on the nation. Amos' call to preach to a rebellious nation was much like Ezekiel's call. Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. Find that interesting. Ezekiel, and you find it in 2, 3, and 5 in Ezekiel. It says, 
And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there has been a prophet among them. They're going to be here and know that somebody was talking to them. The great act of redemption for the people of Israel is pictured here as God's deliverance from bondage in Egypt. This is a type of Christ's great work of redemption in the New Testament. Because of his work on the cross, we can be delivered from the bondage of sin. So I like their explanation, and that's why I like to read it. Another thing that I found noted that I would like to mention and uh, I don't know how many of you have gotten into discussions about the nation of Israel, but a lot of people think that the nation of Israel, a few years ago, maybe it's more than a few years, but when Israel became a nation, and all sorts of things about Armageddon, and people coming together in, in Israel, and Jerusalem, and all sorts of things. When you discuss these things with these people, there's one point that one writer wrote out, as, and it, it applies to all these minor prophets, he wrote and said, Israel's covenant with God did not exempt them from his position on sin. He said, you're sinners and I'm going to take you away. And the ten tribes are lost. They're gone forever. And uh, so Israel, if they did not repent and follow God, they will not be in heaven. They're not automatically saved. They're not a special people. God's people are the Israel of God, his church today. And so uh, um, I find that to be something that we need to be think about as we go into and continue in these minor prophets. The uh, description in the quarterly just mentioned this a little bit. They were very rich. Um, Amos's message was to the ten northern tribes. They were very rich. Their kingdom size was probably back to what David and Solomon had. So it was a huge kingdom. They had slaves. They had people to give them, um, um, how do you say it? Tribute. They had people that paid them because they, had, they were their, their uh, government. They were over them. And uh, they enjoyed a lot of prosperity and plenty. And uh, if you look in chapter 3... Verse 15, I guess it's a lot like it is today, that they even had winter and summer houses. Look at verse 15. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house. So maybe they just had a summer kitchen like we used to know. But uh, apparently the people had uh, warm climate houses for the winter and uh, cool climate houses for the summer. They were wealthy. They didn't only have one house. They had two. And... uh, they had houses of ivory. It says, and houses of ivory shall perish. Now, I don't know how you'd build a house of ivory, but uh, and it seems to be elephant tusk is what he's talking about. But uh, they must have used it as, as decoration. It must have been very hard to come by or something very rich. It says, and the great houses shall have an end. So they had great houses. Does that mean big Whatever it was, they lived in wealth, it seems like. If you turn over to chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and you have taken from him burdens of wheat, we have built houses of hewn stone. So it's no longer the mud huts and the brick houses, but hewn stone. Obviously something of more cost. You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine of them. 
And then we see in chapter 6, verse 4, that they slept in beds of ivory and stretched themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. So it seemed like they were wealthy. And then we see that they, in verse 5, chant to the sound of the viol and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. So they enjoyed music, entertainment, um, concerts. I asked myself, well, what was the difference between their instruments and the instruments of David? What do you think? Was it right for David to make instruments? Was it right for these people to make instruments? What's the difference? What were David's instruments made for? Where were they used? Worshiping God God in the temple. They were made to praise and honor God. This doesn't sound like it. This sounds like they made it for their own enjoyment. And uh, they wanted that. And uh, verse 1 of that chapter, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion that had an easy life. So we have here a uh, wealthy people, and uh, they actually were taking advantage of the poor people, I feel. So we have the setting of Amos in that way. I want to open it. Do you have any questions or comments as you read the book of Amos? Was it something that stuck out to you that you wanted to mention this morning? Give you time to, if you have that. Anything significant about the book of Amos? Chapter 8, verse 11. Okay, Edna, any comment on that? Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So Amos is talking about a famine, and you mean there's going to be a time when they can't hear the words of the Lord? I uh, I stopped at that verse and, and had to think, think about what is he really talking about. And uh, I really think that that verse is uh, one that would go well with uh, Proverbs. Let me see where I wrote this down. He that hardeneth his heart... Um, Shall be destroyed, and that without remedy. I guess I didn't write it down, but I guess there came a time when the Lord was no longer going to call His people, and they're going to ask to to come to the Lord, and the Lord says, "No, I gave you opportunity, and you didn't hear." And so, uh, I think that's where the famine comes in. That of of verse eleven of chapter eight, and it's a sad, sad story. Um, It doesn't say there that the Lord doesn't hear them. Because it goes on to say, They shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. And uh, um, I think, I don't just think, but I know that the Lord, if they search with all their heart, they will find him. But it isn't as readily available as Amos right there preaching it. So, any other thoughts or comments? Okay, chapter 4, verse 12. Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. That's right. We should say America. 
I think the setting of the book of Amos is very much like America and that we should preach that. Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel, O America. What was over here? Okay, I found that interesting. And uh, I guess that's one that I haven't... I wondered what was the saying. Chapter 1, verse 3, verse 6, and uh, uses it eight different times. I wondered what that saying is, and I, I was not able to define that. Why did it say for three transgressions and for four? And uh, um, I thought that very interesting, but I do not have a definition for that. Why? Was it a custom? Was it three you could be killed for and four for sure? Or would judgment for three? Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on three and four? Transgressions. <clears throat> Some background um, history in my Bible states that um, they, the Jeroboam had encouraged practices of fertility cults, uh, worship, uh, adding, uh, adding cubic pillars, doing <coughs> terrapin. Terrapin is what Rachel took out of Laban's um, tent. Okay. So you think that had to do with one of one of these, or maybe with all of them? Okay, because the idol worship was definitely something that Amos is preaching against the teraphims, and so uh, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Okay, I was curious of that. I thought maybe it had a had something. Jo, uh, Josh says his his Bible has a commentary that doing three and four transgressions, it's, it has too many transgressions to count. So they are definitely guilty and uh, subject to judgment. Okay, go to chapter one, verse one, and I thought something I found very interesting is that he said two years before the earthquake. Was that a prophecy or did he write it in the after the earthquake took place? Okay. Okay. The commentary, I, I, I saw it in two different places that when they thought there was an earthquake. Do you have any idea when there was an earthquake in the Old Testament? During this, it says, uh, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam. Any ideas when there was an earthquake? King, pardon? Okay, do you know uh, the setting more of that? Where exactly when it happened? Some seem to think that, did you say Uzziah, Josiah? Mount Zion. Okay, you're talking in, uh, um, yes, when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. Okay, there was definitely an earthquake then. Um, unless you have a different time in mind. Two commentators thought that this was the time there was an earthquake when Uzziah, King Uzziah, 
And uh, what Uzziah did was that he went into the temple and he wanted to sacrifice, wanted to take the place of the priests. And uh, when he was doing that, all of a sudden, uh, forget what it was, I, I didn't, it says, uh, it's in Second Chronicles 26, verse 18, They withstood Uzziah the king, and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests of the sons of Aaron. They are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed, neither shall it be for thine hour from honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was wroth, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and while he was wroth with the priests, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they thrust him out from thence. Yea, himself hasted also to go out, because the Lord had smitten him. I don't know how you read earthquake in there, but they think there was an earthquake at that time as well. When uh, Uzziah went before the altar, and uh, apparently something happened that Uzziah went because they were trying to get him out, and he, in fact, said, I'm getting out of here. And so they think that very possibly this earthquake might have been when Uzziah uh, was trying to take the priest's place. And again, that is a historical bit. We don't base any doctrine on that, but uh, find it interesting. There's a comment in Isaiah 6 that the posts of the door moved when the Lord spoke. Um, was it then? We're not sure. Um, want to look at just a little bit of the book here, especially what we were looking at here in chapter 1 of the eight different times of three and four transgressions. The first one was to Damascus, and it seems Amos's message was to all these different countries, and he ends up with Israel, and then he stays on Israel. So in verse 3, he talks about Damascus. Verse 6, he talks about Gaza. Verse 9, he talks about Tyrus. Verse 11, he talks about Edom. Verse 13, he talks about Ammon. Verse 1 of 2, he talks about Moab. Verse 4, he talks about Judah. And verse 6, he talks about Israel. So he has those eight people that have sinned too much to be forgiven, if we can say it that way. But I wondered, what was their sin? And uh, it would be interesting to go and look at each one. But you look at verse 3, and it says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. And each time it says, because, verse 6, because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them to Edom. That's Geza. Verse 9. Because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. Verse 11. Because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity and his anger did tear perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Verse 1, he, because he burned the bones of king of Edom into, into lime. Verse 4, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments and their lies caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked. Verse 6, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. If I would have to take those eight, eight becauses and look at them very closely in similarity what they did, I believe I could define it as no care for their brethren. 
Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. Remembered not the brotherly covenant. Because look at Edom. You look at Ammon. And you look at Moab. And then you look at Judah and Israel. And if you go back in genealogies, these people were related. They had a common ancestor through Abraham. And uh, very possibly the others as well. But it seemed that the care for the brethren was the reason. If the, the love for each other, the caring for each other was not there. Remembered not the brotherly covenant. I'd be interested in, in studying that more, even though we aren't doing that this morning. But uh, if you find more about that, I'd be interested to know what is remembered not the brotherly covenant. And so it seemed that they um, did not appreciate each other as they should. And maybe I'm biased because I believe that the Jews say that the reason they don't have the Temple Mount today is because they couldn't get along. Found a very interesting, um, very interesting um, bit this last week that uh, a uh, practice of the and I get them mixed up: Hindus or Muslims? Who has the Dome of the Rock? Muslims. The Muslims' practice is when they go in to conquer a country, they will find their sacred places, and there they will put a mosque. What did they want to do at ground zero of the Twin Towers? A mosque. That's what's at the Temple Mount. And I guess they've done it in more countries. I find that as, as very interesting. Um, Okay, we see those eight um, countries that, that Amos talks to, and then from there on, as I mentioned, he talks only to Israel, the ten northern tribes of Israel. Judah comes into topic once in a while, but not very often. Now really, what was to the part that they did? I mean, yes, it says there in verse 6, they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. What is he saying? I believe that they took bribes. You had a case against a righteous person, take, uh, take uh, Ahab and uh, uh, Naboth case, for instance. They made bribes and they, caught, they come against Naboth and they took away his inheritance. And this is what he's talking about. They sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. And uh, the pair of shoes being not worth very much, but that means that they, that they um, would deviate from righteous judgment for very uh, low price. Just for a pair of shoes, they would condemn somebody even though he wasn't guilty. False testimonies. And uh, uh, what what happened there. Verse 12, it says, But he gave, but ye gave, and he's, he's, he's coming on, continuing, saying what Israel did wrong. But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. Now why would it be wrong to give the Nazarites wine to drink? Because of their vow, they're not supposed to. Remember the Rechabites? They brought them in and the Rechabites gave them wine and they said, no. Our father said, no, we don't drink and we're not going to drink. And here they wanted to give the Nazarites. They wanted to make them fall. And that seems to be the worst place that a man can be is where he actually wants other people to fall and make fun of them. Some time ago, there was a young boy going into a Walmart and uh, 
he decided he's going to have a little bit of fun. So as he came up to the doors, all of a sudden he was crippled. And uh, he wanted to use the battery-powered grocery cart, the electric cart. And obviously the greeter saw what what he was trying to do and, and tried to make... Tried to tell him, no, he, he can't do that. I mean, he was walking a right up to the door and whatnot. Well, finally, the manager came by. There was enough of a scene that the manager came by, and the greeter got into trouble for not letting him use the electric cart, and the young boy was feeling proud because he got the greeter into trouble. Isn't that a warped kind of... Um, humor, whatever it may be. And I believe that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to get the Nazarites to drink wine, to make the righteous fall. And uh, the very epitome, I believe, of wickedness. If we would look at the key verses of Amos, chapter 3, verse 1, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you with all your iniquities. Amos is telling them, I loved you, I brought you out of Egypt, but you've gone away, you no longer love me. I will punish you for all your iniquities. Chapter 4, verse 11. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. I saved you once, I brought you out of destruction, I brought you out of Egypt. Even though ye murmured and complained afterward, yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Believe that that's a very important part of his whole message. That come back to me, come back. Chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor of a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. In that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. They that swear by the sin of Samaria... And say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise up again. So I believe that these are some key verses describing the sin of Israel and uh, we could and the idolatry that they were involved in. And then I believe in chapter 9, verse 11, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as the days of old, and they may, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities, and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards, and drink, and the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them and I will plant them upon their land and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I give given them saith the Lord thy God so here we have actually the restoration of Israel coming back the prosperity of it you wonder what does it mean when it says um, verse 13 the plowman shall overtake the reaper what do you think that really means That means that when he's plowing, he's going to get into standing corn? I think that's right. 
I think the crop was so huge that they it was time to plow again before they got the last one harvested. It says, The plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. The mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. The hills will be useful. You can plant on them. They're not just rugged and barren. And so the Lord is going to give them all of those things. And he's going to offer them those things. Now, those, I think, are the key verses of Amos. But Amos also had five visions. And uh, we could look at the different definitions, but I think they were all to bring Israel back. Chapter 7, verse 1 to 3, were the locusts. We're familiar with those. Um, They formed grasshoppers. And he was going to bring the plague of the locusts. Chapter 4, verse 6, the great fire. Chapter verse seven. Chapter seven, verse seven. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. Now, I don't know. We used to use a plumb line. Now we use a laser. But uh, you know what a plumb line's for? Richard Jr., you know what it's for? Making sure something's straight, up and down, that it's plumb. And the Lord said He's going to hold a plumb line to them. So if you want, if we hold it to this pulpit right here and we get it to hold still, we see that obviously that pulpit wasn't made to be plumb because the distance here is greater, greater down there than it is up here. And the Lord said that's the way your lives are. He said... A plumb line. And then it says that um, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. It says I'll show them what they've done wrong. I'll show them that they're crooked. I'll show, I'll show them that they're off of, of, level, of plumb. And I'll show that they are wicked. Verse Chapter 8, verse 1, he has a vision of a basket of summer fruit. And... Uh, then in chapter 9, he has a vision of the Lord standing beside the altar. Each of these have their own meaning, I believe, but we're, drawing, we're trying to draw Israel back into uh, communion with God. We ask if Amos is really an inspired word or if it's actually part of the rest of the Bible. And yes, Amos 1 verse 2 is quoted in Joel 3.16 and in Jeremiah 25.30. So uh, the book of Joel existed when Jeremiah did, and it's those same words uh, are are very similar, very close in chapter two. There again, verse four, chapter four, verse nine are in Haggai, chapter nine, thirteen are in Joel three, eighteen, and we have chapter five, verse twenty-five. That one will read. It says, "Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel?" And actually, in Acts chapter seven. Verse 42, and uh, I think this is Stephen uh, preaching. And it says, Then God turned and gave them up to worship the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered unto me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness. And so Stephen is quoting out of the prophets that he would have known. So he would have known the book of of Amos and quoted from it in his last message to the uh, priests.
I find it very interesting to look at the life of Amos, and I believe Amos exemplified the characteristics of a godly minister. Uh, number one, he interceded for God's people in chapter 7. He had personal communion with God in that intercession. Number three, he was humble. We saw that, that he told them he was not a prophet's son nor a prophet, but a gatherer of fruit. Number four, he preaches God's word completely. Number five, does not fear men. Let's go to chapter 7. And uh, Amos must have been preaching some by that time. And uh, here he is talking about the grasshoppers that we saw in chapter one, uh, in verse 1 and so on. And then um, the plumb line that we just talked about. And then in verse 10 it says, Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel. Now why is Bethel significant? What comes up to your mind? Why is Bethel significant historically? There was a priest there named Amaziah. When we look at these timelines, there's two things that we often look at, and that is when the kingdom of Israel split. Okay, It was Saul, David, and then Solomon, and then the, the kingdom was divided. And when the kingdom divided, it was Rehoboam who said, we don't want these people going back to Jerusalem to worship, so he set golden idols in what two cities? Bethel and Dan. He said, I don't want these people to go back. And so he set up idolatrous worship of calves, I think it was golden calves, in Bethel and Dan. And so it's in Bethel that Amaziah, this prophet is, and probably close to an idol, he says that, let's see what he says. He's saying, Amos has conspired against thee. He's telling the king Amos has conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy. Run away, get you away from here. Go away, Amos. Leave. You're a traitor. But prophesy not again anymore at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. Go away. Don't preach here. It's the king's place. It's the king's property. What Amos do? Pack his bags and leave? Look at verse 14. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me and follow, and I, as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. Now, thou, now therefore hear thou the word of the Lord. He said, I'm not leaving. You listen. You listen to what I say. Thou sayest, prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Israel. Therefore thus saith the Lord, thy wife shall be in harlot in the city. And he goes on to prophesy destruction to them. You're going to be taken into captivity. You're going to be destroyed. He didn't run away. He said, now you listen to me. This is what the Lord says. I like his attitude. I like his attitude. Are there any Amaziahs among us? Are there any Amaziahs among us that tell us, no, just just be quiet, don't preach that, just, you know, lay, lay still, don't do that? What would we do? 
What would we do if there would be We've talked a lot about the different aspects of Amos, and we've looked at uh, different characteristics of him. We've asked about the, his attitude of, hear the word of the Lord. He didn't say, listen to me. He said, hear the word of the Lord. What was his message? As I tried to define that to me, turn to chapter 5. And uh, I think uh, Amos's message was twofold, and you could choose the one. We've talked about the one already. Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. But I think there's a second one as well. In chapter 5, verse 4, For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. Seek the Lord. Verse 8, Seek the Lord, and ye shall live. Verse 8, Seek him that maketh the seven stars in Orion. Verse 14, Seek good and not evil that ye may live. And so that the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. I believe that Amos's message is twofold. Seek the Lord and prepare to meet thy God. And in a sense, they are the same. But I believe that Amos's message was that we need to seek the Lord with all our heart. Let's together say our uh, memory verses. Are you ready? 2 Timothy three sixteen. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. As we look at the book of Amos, might it do that? Might it help us to walk closer with God? Might there not be a famine of the word of the Lord? May it be close because we've been practicing, we've been close, we've been studying it. We've been doing what we can. Seek ye him, seek the Lord. Okay, we have our list. Um, just quickly, ingredients of the books of the prophets. What's the warning of impending judgment because of the nation's sinfulness? Did you notice any? What was the warning of impending judgment? Well, that chapter 4 that we did was that he was going to overthrow them, that he was going to take them captive. What is the description of the sin? Do you have any verse that jumped out into you? What is the description of their sin? Chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 6. They have sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. Number 3, a description of the coming judgment. Can anyone have that one? What was going to happen? Chapter 
Chapter 9, verse 1, I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence will my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. Call for repentance. Anyone? What was the call for repentance? Chapter 5, seek him. Any others? Four verse twelve. Prepare to meet thy God. Now the last one, a promise of future deliverance. What was that one? Chapter nine, verse eleven and following. I'm going to add this one. Were there any messianic prophecies that you noticed? I only found one. Did it come to you? Chapter 9, verse 11. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. So, uh, okay. Again, thank you for your participation, and uh, Lord bless you for taking an interest in these. And may we meditate on the spiritual reasons of Amos and not glory in all the intellectual knowledge that we gather him. Seek the Lord, prepare to meet thy God. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and care for us. We thank you for your presence. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to remember the spiritual aspect of Amos and that he taught us to seek you and that we should prepare to meet you, that we should be ready when you come back. And Lord, may that be the most important thing in our life, and may we want to follow you closely and do what is right and pleasing to you, not fall into the life of ease and riches that uh, Israel did at this time, but that we would have a time of seeking you in our life and following you closely, that there would be never a famine of your words, but that we would be always close and that they could be close to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to take it to heart and to use and to live by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.